The book of Ecclesiastes can be divided, I think, rightly into four sections. And last time we were together, we listened to King Solomon start the third section of the book, which spans from chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through chapter 8, verse 15. And in sections 1 and 2, here is what we learned from Kohelet, as Solomon calls himself, or the professor. God is sovereign over all things, and he alone gives his people enjoyment in the vanity of life. That's a summary of what Solomon teaches in the first two sections of this book. God is sovereign over all things, and he alone gives his people enjoyment in this vain life. So here's how that works. God is sovereign, which means that nothing happens apart from God's will. That's what it means to say that God is sovereign. Everything that happens is a part of God's will. And life, Solomon makes clear, is vanity, which means literally life is a mist. Life is short It is monotonous, it is inscrutable, but God gives the one who fears him, the one who loves him, the one who pleases him, the power to enjoy it. So God is in control of all things, all things that are a part of your life, and your life, my life, is vanity. But God gives the one who fears him the power to enjoy that life. So again, God is sovereign over all things and he alone gives his people enjoyment in the vanity of life. Or to say it another way and simply, God is great and God is good. He's great. He's mighty. He's all powerful. And God is good, not one or the other, but both. The greatness and the goodness of God. So that's section one and two. And now the section we're in, in section three, which is the central section of Solomon's book, he takes that truth for a test drive. That's one way to look at what he's doing in this section. He takes that truth. God is sovereign and he alone gives his people enjoyment in the vanity of life. And now he puts that behind the wheel and he tests it out. Is that really true? Does that really work? He he takes that that perspective and puts it on like a pair of glasses and looks at everything in the world through that perspective. He's applying it. He's testing it and he's trying to discern in front of us whether or not it's true and whether or not it actually works and as he does that in this third section as he does that and here's where we're going today some problems come up and he deals with them so that's what he's doing he's taking that truth that he established in the beginning of the book And now he's evaluating it, he's investigating it, 
He's holding it up. He's looking at it from all sides. And as he does that and looks at this world, there's some problems that come up. There's some obstacles. There's some contrary arguments that might suggest that that's not true. He doesn't hide any of that. He brings it up. He puts it on the table. For example, and you'll remember this from last time. If God is sovereign, then why does the world seem so unfair and unjust? It's a good question. It's a question we all ask. If God is sovereign, then why does the world seem so unfair and unjust? More specifically, why do so many wicked people prosper and so many righteous people suffer? Solomon's got a big problem with that. Because he knows you have a big problem with that. He knows that's difficult for you to see what he sees and to look out and to see so many righteous people suffering and so many wicked people prospering and to then questions. I don't know if God is sovereign. Or if God is sovereign, he can't be good. I mean, either he's not in control of all this or he's in control and he's bad. He's not good. He doesn't care. That's the objection. That's the contrary argument. Solomon's basic response, you'll remember in chapter 6, verses 1 through chapter 7, verses 17, to that objection, his basic response was, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't presume to know what God is doing. And the point he made was prosperity is not always a good thing. Things going well in the way you like them is not always a good thing. And conversely, adversity is not always a bad thing. So today, the professor is going to move from perspective to practice. Lord willing, we'll finish out this third section. And in the last half of this third section, Solomon is going to give an observation and an instruction. His overarching observation, which we've already heard before in this book, he comes back to it over and over again. His overarching observation is basically this. God's ways are beyond your ways. It's important for a Christian to remember that, to remind themselves of that over and over again. God's ways are beyond your ways. God's ways are beyond my ways. That's the observation you'll see he's going to make. And then his instruction. How to live in this seemingly unfair, unjust world where God's ways are higher than my ways. His instruction is this. Fear God and enjoy your life. Now, I love how simple Solomon's instructions are. And it's pretty interesting because he's the smartest man that ever lived. 
He's the wisest man that ever lived, the Bible tells us. But he doesn't just give us heady doctrine. He gives us doctrine for every day. He gives us doctrine for life. And when it comes to the application and the instruction, he says things like, let me boil this down for you. And hopefully it's boiled down by the time we leave here this morning. He says, let me boil this down for you. What are you supposed to do? In this unfair, unjust world, in this life of vanity, here's what you're supposed to do. If you remember anything, remember this, Solomon says. Fear God and enjoy your life. When it comes to vertical, fear God. When it comes to horizontal, enjoy life. So that's the observation. That's the instruction. But before I preach this sermon, we should... Pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, we come to you by your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you, if you don't own a Bible, you'll find today's text on page 358. We have a lot to work through today. I don't think I got the right information to Josh. We're actually studying chapter 7, verse 15, all the way through Chapter 8, verse 15. So, we're going to move quickly. And before we get started with our text today, which actually starts in chapter 7, verse 16, I want to read you the preceding verse. So, we're in chapter 7, verse 15. It's a transitional verse, which means that it's looking back at the text we've already read, and it's looking forward at the text we're going to read today. Here's what verse 15 says. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So in verse 15, that's the author's twofold observation, and you've seen the same thing. He sees wicked people living a long life, and he sees righteous people living a short life. I mean, not all the time. It doesn't always work out like that, but too much. So much that it's a problem for him and it's a problem for us. He sees wicked people living a long life and righteous people living a short life and it seems unfair. He raises it as an objection. He felt like his dad, King David, who wrote in Psalm 73, verses 12 through 14. Here's what Solomon's dad said. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. That's how David felt at one point. He said, what's the point? What is the point of me trying so hard to be good, to be righteous, and to please God? Because it's not going well for me. And then here's this wicked guy over here, doesn't give a rip about God, and he lives at ease, and he gets richer and richer. 
So his son Solomon asks the same question. Most Christians at some point deal with this anomaly. Most of you have either seen this or you've experienced it. And when you do, you're tempted to doubt Solomon's proposition. If you feel like you're a righteous person, if you feel like you're a Christian, if you feel like you love God, if it doesn't go well for you for a long period of time, you may be tempted to doubt what Solomon says. That God is sovereign and that he alone gives enjoyment to his people because you're thinking, this is not the way to my enjoyment. Suffering, pain, adversity. So we might be tempted to think that it's not true. We doubt the sovereignty of God or we doubt the goodness of God. So that is the struggle that takes Solomon into our verses today. Where he stands on his observation and gives us a very important instruction. So we're saying, okay, Solomon, where we're hearing your perspective, but, but how should I live? Help us understand, Solomon, what, is this, what does this look like in this vain life? So let's begin chapter 7 now with verses 16 through 18. And listen for the first part of the instruction, which I mentioned at the beginning. Verse 16. Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? And now here's the positive instruction. Those are don'ts. And here's the do. Verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this. That is verse 16. And from that. That is verse 17. Withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So the instruction is to fear God. You see that in verse 18. The instruction is to fear God. And if you do that, you will avoid verse 16 and verse 17. You will, he says, come out from both of them. So here's what the king says. He is saying, avoid being overly righteous and overly wicked by fearing God. That's the instruction. Let me say that again. Christian, avoid being overly righteous and avoid being overly wicked by fearing God. Does that sound strange to you? Well, you're nodding your head. This doesn't sound strange. You've probably heard a Christian say, don't be overly wicked. Although overly is kind of a strange word. Like it's okay to be a little wicked. Is that what Solomon is saying? You've heard people say avoid wickedness. Just don't overdo it. (laughs) That doesn't square with the rest of the Bible. You can't be saying that. And I doubt you've ever heard a Christian say don't be overly righteous. 
But he just said that. I mean, I'm, I'm quoting what he said. Do not be overly righteous. How is that even possible? What does that mean to be overly righteous? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48? He said, you therefore must be perfect. Well, there, there isn't anything more righteous than that. He said, because your heavenly father is perfect. So we have a New Testament command that says that the standard we fall short, of course, but the standard is you have to be totally righteous. You have to be perfect. There should be no unrighteousness in you. That's what you're striving for. But here Solomon says, don't be too righteous. So here's what Solomon is talking about. Think about this with me. Think about the context. When Christians see the righteous, prospering, and the wicked, suffering, they are tempted to do one of two things. That's what he's wrestling with, right? We see the righteous suffer. We see the wicked prosper. And when that happens, a Christian is tempted to do one of two things. One is to become very righteous, and the other is to become very wicked, and both are traps. Let me explain. If I think I'm righteous, and I do most of the time, by the way. I'm not, but I do think that way most of the time. If I think that I am righteous, and yet I'm suffering. So now this apparent inequality is going on in my life. If I think I'm righteous, and yet I am suffering, I may be tempted to think that I'm suffering because God isn't really good or God doesn't really care. I may be tempted to think that I'm suffering because I'm not righteous enough. Maybe I'm not righteous enough. Maybe I'm not good enough. I have this thing that I still struggle with. I should be farther along than I am. That's why I'm suffering. God's punishing me. So what do I need to do? I need to be more righteous. That's how I would think. I need to be better. And so what do I do? I focus on righteousness so that I will avoid adversity. That's the logic. I focus on being more righteous so that I can avoid suffering and avoid adversity. I become overly righteous. That's what Solomon's talking about. And he says, don't do that. Don't do that. The other temptation is if I think I am righteous and yet I'm suffering... Again, I might be tempted to think that God is not good or that God just doesn't care. So what do I do? I throw my hands up and I just give up. What's the point? If I think I'm righteous and I'm still suffering. Obviously, it's not good enough. Obviously, God doesn't care. So I throw my hands up. I give up and I become what Solomon calls overly wicked. And Solomon says, don't do that. What should you do? How should you avoid both those traps? What's his answer? Fear God. Fear God. 
when life is difficult and unfair, and it usually is, life is vanity. When life is difficult and unfair, do not focus on being better or being worse on trying to earn favor by doing more good or giving up and doing more evil. Rather, fear God. Consider who God is, your heavenly Father, and look to please Him in all that you do. That is wisdom. And Solomon goes on in verse 19 and says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Let me read verse 20 again. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Remember I said that most of the time I think I'm righteous and verse 20 says no you're not. That's not true. Here's the thing. And this is this may sound controversial. You are not a good person. You are not a good person. But let me say that a different way. I am not a good person. We are not good People. Let me explain what I mean. You may do some good things. And there may be someone out there that you're better than. That's not too hard. But you are not the kind of good that deserves anything good from God. That's what verse 20 reminds us of. You are not the kind of good that deserves anything good from God. You were born a sinner. And you can ask your parents from before you can remember you were sinning. And you were sinning because you were a sinner. You didn't just sin one day and your parents said, oh, I guess he's a sinner. Because it's a part of your nature ever since Genesis chapter 3. You inherited a sinful nature from your great father and mother, Adam and Eve. And we're all the same that way. What comes naturally to us is sin and evil and wickedness. You may do good things, but the good things you do is because God is at work in your life. Because of God's grace upon you. And there is nothing good in you apart from God. So, why is he saying that here? So don't be overly righteous. Don't think that if it's not going well for you, there's some measure of goodness that you can attain and then you'll deserve good things from God and there will no longer be adversity and suffering. That is not how it works. And that's impossible. There's not a righteous man or woman on earth earth who does what is right and never sins and that's how good you'd need to be to never deserve anything but good things in your life that's not where we are 
People who fear God will not pursue wickedness, of course, but they also will not pursue what Sidney Grainis calls super righteousness. Rather, they will fear God. And now here's something else a God fearer will not do. Verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. And if you fear God, people will say a lot. And he says, do not take to heart all the things that people say. And then he gives two reasons not to listen to what people say or think. Lest you hear your servant cursing you. He says, don't worry so much about what people think about you. Don't worry so much about what people say about you. You know why? Because they're probably thinking bad things about you. And they're probably saying bad things about you. So don't worry about it. And then second, verse 22, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. He says, right? Fear God. That is the practical instruction for living in this unfair world. Don't try and earn God's favor. Don't try to earn a prolonged life. You can't do it. On the other hand, don't give up and pursue folly. Don't worry about what other people think or say. Rather, fear God. Okay, one last paragraph in this chapter. Uh, Seven more verses. I'm going to move through these seven verses quickly. And then we're going to move through the first 14 verses of chapter 8 quickly. I'm doing that because he, he breaks from his instruction here. And then he's going to return with a, the second part of the instruction in verse 15 of chapter 8. In verses 23 of chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 14, he's going to make this observation. God's ways are beyond our ways. That's what he wants you to remember as you're following his instruction. You're going to look out at this difficult world. You're going to look out at this vain life. You're going to look at your life and see how short it is and how monotonous it is and how inscrutable all the circumstances are. And he wants you to remember that God's ways are higher than your ways. Listen, you'll hear it over and over again in these verses. Chapter 7, verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said... I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So Solomon has thought about this. And remember, Solomon is the wisest man to ever live. He's thought about life. He's thought about the unfairness. He has tested, evaluated, experiment, investigated, inspected. He has tried to figure it out. And what does he say? It's too deep. It's too far. It's too deep. It's too far. God's ways are beyond our ways. Verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out. And to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. And to know the wickedness of folly. And the foolishness that is madness. But he can't figure it out. He discovers a few things. Beginning in verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. 
the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Who's he talking about? Is this some woman in his life that just really put him over the edge? One of his 1,000 women, by the way. He had 1,000 women. No, I think Solomon is doing what he does throughout Proverbs. He is personifying folly as a woman. He does that throughout the book of Proverbs, especially in Proverbs chapter 7. And he describes folly and foolishness and sinfulness as a woman who gets hold of you and doesn't let you go. So he's talking about how tempting it was to be wicked, how tempting it was to do what he said earlier, to be overly wicked, to just give up, to just throw your hands up and say, forget it. I'm just going to indulge. I'm just going to seek pleasure. I'm just going to forget about God. I'm just going to do whatever I want. To know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So the lure of wickedness is great. The lure of wickedness is great. Christian, be careful of the temptation. When life is difficult, when life is hard, when life is painful, when the events in your life aren't going the way you want them to go, when things don't make any sense, you will be tempted to abandon God. You may be tempted to abandon your spouse. You may be tempted to abandon your children, to abandon your friends, to abandon your church. I can't do this. This is too much. This is too difficult. This is unbearable. I can't go another day. And to pursue what you want and to leave all your responsibility behind and to become what he calls overly wicked seems at first to be so much better. There's relief. You're numb. Not as much as expected of you. But he learned it was a trap. It was a snare. It chained him to a wall. Verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. He says it again. He's adding one thing to another. He's trying to add it up and life does not add up. It doesn't make any sense. God's ways are beyond our ways. Second part of verse 28. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. His point is he's not finding godly men. He's not finding godly women. And finally, verse 29. See, this alone I found that God made man upright. Genesis 1 and 2. But they have sought out many schemes. Genesis chapter 3. We've become wicked. So this is his observation. He's describing again, isn't he? Life is vanity. 
If you don't understand what he's saying in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's not an enjoyable book to read. It's a difficult book to read. It's a painful book to read. Some of you have been here since the beginning of our study. You told me that the first few weeks were very difficult. It was tough to sit through. Because Solomon, in those first few chapters and throughout the book, there are times where he holds your head underwater. It's bad. Don't turn from it. Like, face it. This is reality. Don't change the channel. Don't plug your ears. It's painful. It's difficult. It's hard. You're going to feel like you can't do it. Like you can't face it. There's injustice in your life. There's injustice all over the world. There's oppression in your life. There's oppression all over the world. Christians are persecuted. People are treated unfairly. The righteous are suffering. The wicked are prospering. It's everywhere. It's in your home. It's in your backyard. It's in your neighborhood. It's in your town. It's in your county. It's in your state. It's in your country. It's in the world. So we might as well, this is what Solomon does, we might as well put it on the table and not just go la, 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 pretend it doesn't exist. Life is vanity. He's doing that again in this chapter. He's giving us an instruction, but he's not letting us get far away from that observation that life is vanity and he wants us to remember God's ways are beyond our ways. Chapter 8. I lied a little bit earlier. These five verses do offer more instruction, but we're not going to focus on it. Given the context of these chapters, I think these are instructions for citizens who are under a powerful and wicked king. I don't think that's, you may think that's the case for us. But these were people who had a totally different form of government and they were under a powerful, all-controlling, wicked king. He gives them specific instruction here where this king is, is a part of this injustice and this oppression. What are they supposed to do? And he basically tells them, be wise. We'll read the verses. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, here's the instruction. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. This is like what Romans 13 teaches in the New Testament. And be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. It's a side note. We're not going to focus on it, but some instructions he gives to citizens to apply these truths if they're under a wicked and powerful king. So let's get back to his observation. God's ways are beyond our ways. Before our closing exhortation. Verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? God's ways are beyond our ways. We worry, we get anxious, we fret in this vain life. He says, you don't know the future. You don't know the future. You don't know what's going to happen 10 minutes from now, let alone 10 years from now. You don't know how this is going to turn out. Don't presume to know what God is doing. 
verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So he says, you don't know the future and you can't control the present. God's ways are beyond your ways. You can't control the present. You have no, what does he say? No power to retain the spirit. That's literally the wind or power over the day of death. You can't control the day of your death. There is no discharge from war. Once a battle starts, you're in it. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Wickedness does not deliver the wicked, though they might think that it does. That that's their way out, that that's their way of escape. Verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Life is vanity. You don't know the future. You can't control the present. Difficult things to think about. God's ways are beyond your ways. Some people are frustrated with that response. It sounds like a cop-out to some people. We want to rationalize everything, explain everything, see how it fits together. But God's word gives this answer over and over again. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. He's seeing the wicked prosper and die a happy death. It's not fair, he says. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who, comes back to the instruction, fear God because they fear before him. Verse 13, but it will not, he means ultimately, be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. And verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So you see what he did. 8 verse 14 is almost the same thing he said in 7 verse 15. It's bracketed with this observation. Righteous people suffering. Wicked people prospering. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just. So I'm questioning God. Are you really in control? I'm questioning God. Are you really good? Fear God has been the instruction so far. And now in conclusion of this third section. He gives an unexpected instruction again. And these words are going to sound familiar in chapter 8, verse 15, because he ended the first two sections the same way. And it kind of catches you by surprise. You almost think he's being sarcastic. 
Listen to chapter 8, verse 15. Now, before I read it, think about what he has just said. I mean, some of you last 10 minutes, your countenance completely changed. Or you're depressed now. You're discouraged. You want to go home. This is a terrible sermon. This is not what you go to church for. Your batteries are not recharged. So, verse 15 sounds sort of strange. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. He did it again. He did it at the end of chapter 2. He did it in the middle of chapter 5. His observation is life is vanity, right? It's short. It's monotonous. It's inscrutable. It's hard. It's painful. Enjoy it. I mean, feel that. That is, that is what he does. It is, it is over and over again. And he'll do it again in this book. It is an unexpected conclusion. But it wraps up the instruction. Fear God and enjoy your life. So let's put it all together. What has Solomon said? He's given us an observation. And he's given us an instruction. And he's given that to us as we live in this life of vanity. Here's the observation again. God is sovereign and his ways are beyond our ways. God is sovereign and his ways are beyond our ways. Hold on to that. Don't forget that truth. God is sovereign. God is in control. You're not. If you feel like you're in control, it's an illusion. And you don't know the future. But God is in control. He's working a plan. Genesis 3 told us that in that plan, everything is beautiful in its time. And what God does is he takes a lot of ugly and makes it beautiful. Over and over. I don't see how this could work out. And it works out for his glory and your good. Over and over. God is sovereign and his ways are beyond our ways. The world is filled with injustice. Life is vanity. But we remember texts like Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And these kinds of verses are all over the Bible. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What did God just say? I don't think like you think. Don't think that you think like I think. My ways are not like your ways. Your ways are not like my ways. The way you do stuff is not how I do stuff. The way you think about stuff is not how I think about stuff. The way I execute plans is not how you execute plans. But we want to take my plans and my thoughts and my ways and assume that that's just what God does. It doesn't make sense. For, why? What's the difference? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What does that mean? His ways and his thoughts are not just different than yours. They're better. Like way better. His thoughts are better than your thoughts. His ways are better than your ways. His plans are better 
than your plans. You think, I wish God would do this the way I want him to do it. No, you don't. His ways are better. Thank God his ways are not our ways. Thank God his plans are not like our plans. Thank God he is not limited in his thoughts like we are limited in our thoughts. Or Job eleven seven and 8. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Is it higher than heaven? What can you do? Deeper than Sheol? What can you know? Or Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And yet we spend so much time fretting and puzzling over his ways and his judgments. And we were just told by Paul, that's an impossible task. His judgments, they're unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. God's ways, that's the observation. God's ways are higher than our ways. God's ways are are beyond our ways. Remember that in this life of vanity. And now follow this instruction. Fear God. And enjoy your life. That's the focus. Fear God. And enjoy your life. We cannot make sense of this paradoxical world. We must entrust ourselves to God. We must fear God. We must seek to please him. We should not try to control God or our life by being super righteous. We should not give up and pursue wickedness. Rather, we're told we should fear God and enjoy the life he has given you. Whether he's given you a lot or a little, enjoy it to his glory. Sidney Grainus says this, of course... Enjoyment in life does not answer all the questions we have. But the commendation of enjoyment cautions against too much puzzling over the incomprehensible and morally offensive facts of life. And then he says this, embracing joy frees you, me, to let God be God whose trademark is work that exceeds our comprehension. In conclusion, life is vanity. The righteous suffer. The wicked prosper. So what do I do? Fear God. Fear God. Trust Him. His ways are beyond your ways. You can't see what He sees. You can't know what He knows. Fear God. He is your heavenly father. You are his adopted son or daughter. You've been brought into his family. You understand and know who he is. So out of deep reverence of him. Seek to please him in everything you do. This is what it means to fear God. We're to fear God. Is how we relate to God according to Solomon.
Now, what about this life? How do we relate to this life? How do we relate to people, relationships, to, to family, to, to my job, to the gifts that God has given me? And what's Solomon's answer? Enjoy them. It's not an accident. God is sovereign. Whether he's given you a lot or a little, whatever he has given you, he has given you. And he's given it to you so that as you fear him, you would enjoy your life. So remember the message of this great book. All of life is vanity. And yet those who fear God are able to enjoy it as they know and trust in the greatness and goodness of God, receiving this life and all that is in it as a gift. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the instructions that you've given us through King Solomon today. I'm sure, God, that there are people here who do not fear you. Pray that you would convict us of our fearlessness before you, that you would bring a deep reverence for you, that we would take you seriously, take your commands seriously, the worship of you seriously, that we would seek to please you in everything that we do. God, there may be some here today who, who fear you, but struggle to enjoy the life that you've given them. God, if there are people here with little, I pray that you would give them the power to enjoy it. That they would see every little thing as a gift from you. I pray for those whom you have given much that they would not feel guilty about their joy. I pray that they would not ignore your gifts. I pray that they would express gratitude to you and glorify you as their father as they enjoy before you the gifts you've given them as they live in fear before you. So make us these people, we pray, incline our hearts toward you in this way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.